the browser has become the central application of the consumer operating system. Every piece of client software, from email to document management, has become usable through the browser. Even modern desktop software such as Slack is built using Electron, a tool for building client applications that essentially run inside of a browser window that does not have an address bar. One activity that still takes place largely outside of the browser is the process of writing and deploying code. A developer often uses an IDE such as Eclipse to write their code, then switches over to a terminal where they can build and deploy their code to a remote server running in the cloud. For a developer who has been writing code for a long time, this process of disconnected tools feels completely intuitive. But for a new developer, it can be very disorienting. New developers sometimes have trouble understanding the difference between a local and a remote environment, or how to use repository management software like Git. And this is all in addition to the other problems that a new developer might be dealing with, such as language installation, syntax, and package management. Replit is a browser-based coding environment, a computing engine, and a collaborative workspace. Replit has found significant traction among new programmers who begin their programming journey within Replit and then stay in the environment, even as their applications become more richly featured and complicated. Replit is an amazing piece of software, and the story behind it is incredible. Amjad Massad had the idea for Replit many years before he started the company, but he needed to first build up the money and the confidence in order to go after this business with full force. Amjad joins the show to talk about his long journey towards building Replit and to discuss the thriving Replit platform in its current form. This show was a real pleasure. I enjoyed talking to Amjad quite a bit, and I hope you enjoy it too. Continuous integration allows teams to move faster. TeamCity is the continuous integration and delivery server developed by JetBrains. I've always loved the IDEs from JetBrains. I've used WebStorm and RubyMine and IntelliJ. And once you start using any of the JetBrains products, you realize that this is a company that knows how to build products for developers. TeamCity gives you continuous integration and delivery designed by JetBrains. For most teams, TeamCity is completely free as long as three build agents is enough for your project. For larger organizations, there is TeamCity Enterprise, and listeners of Software Engineering Daily can get TeamCity Enterprise with a 50% discount by going to teamcity.com slash sedaily. That's T-E-A-M-City.com slash sedaily. TeamCity supports most popular programming build tools and test automation systems, version control systems, and cloud platforms. Whatever the size of your organization is, check out teamcity.com slash sedaily and get started with continuous delivery. Thank you to JetBrains for being a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. And if you want to try out JetBrains TeamCity, go to teamcity.com slash sedaily. I'm Jad Masad. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. You used to work at Facebook. Describe the tooling experience of a developer at Facebook. What do you have access to there? 
So one of the things that you're sort of struck by when you start at Facebook is how fast they give you a development environment, right? And at least when I was there, there was an online IDE as well that gets you gets you started pretty quickly. So from day one in bootcamp, you're sort of in the code, you're debugging it, you're you're coding, you're maybe committing and 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 sending diffs their version of pull requests. And over time, that experience gets uh, gets better and better. I think one of the things that was really frustrating is I wanted to do mobile there. I was really excited about Android. And part of the reason why I joined Facebook is I was excited about their internet.org sort of thing that they were doing where they're trying to bring internet to the rest of the world. And Android was a big part of that. And like the growth in 2012, 2013 of of devices. And I thought, okay, we're going to get a lot more people online. We're going to get a lot more people, computers, and this is going to be exciting. So I wanted to do some mobile dev there. And that was really frustrating. You change one line of code and it takes 15 minutes to recompile. And that actually what got me interested in what became React Native at the time when I was at Facebook. But but yeah, basically things were, were really great in terms of getting people started really quickly. The website was kind of frustrating. The reload will take anywhere between 30 to like one minute to reload the page after you change something. So I started working on a lot of tools to make things faster. I'm just like a tools person. I'm always frustrated by the experience of, of programming because I really like interactive programming. I really like kind of have programming being more of a conversation with a computer rather than sort of a thing that I think about and then, you know, type some code out. And so I was frustrated with the JavaScript development and experience there and started building uh, hot reloading tools to make my job easier. And then, you know, later on, I joined the React and React Native team and started working on those things full time. With React Native, was there a kind of political struggle to get Apple to be okay with React Native being a thing? Because that added so much dynamism to this. I mean, speaking of a slow process, like it is slow to recompile a mobile application. It's also much slower to deploy a mobile application. Yeah, I mean, we worried about it. I think before we released, they changed their terms of service to allow... They changed something about their terms of service that made React Native... Uh, sort of not infringe on Apple's server service. I'm trying to remember which line was that, but something about you can uh, you can ship over the air like JavaScript as long as you're executing within the like their JavaScript engine, JavaScript core, then you're okay with with updating your application on the fly. I think something like that. So there was a little bit of worry, but but by the time we launched, I think there was a lot less worry about that. Obviously, like a lot of people that were working in React Native were motivated by by the idea of like, how do we bring uh, the web dev experience that we're all love and used to, to mobile. You see, Facebook was one of the pioneers of iterative development and continuous integration and all this stuff that they worked on. When they became a mobile first company, they just slowed down a whole lot because they, they went back to this like shrink wrap software way of doing things. And so there was a big push inside the company to let's actually change that. And I'm not sure if you you had Jordan Walk on the podcast yet, but yeah, he like a lot of what motivates him is is that is the idea of like more freedom in software development and and things like that. He's an inventor of React and React Native and and Reason and all this stuff. So there's definitely there was some kind of 
ideological struggle and ideological you know drive behind these tools i think mobile and cloud are probably the two biggest shifts to the world of software development over the last decade or so and obviously mobile has its frictions and a lot of tooling has gone into making the mobile experience better it has gotten a lot better cloud most people perceive as actually being a, a fairly decent experience it's not perfect i was reading some of the the stuff you've written and my sense is that you you think that there is a lack of understanding or a lack of usability for cloud tools or cloud products among a large set of uh, of developers in the world. Can, can you characterize more what you think the the shortcomings of, of cloud usability are? You know, I, I've written a lot about different aspects of the programmer experience. In some cases, getting worse over time. So if you go back to the early PC, you can see computers booting up to either, you know, if it's uh, IBM or Microsoft-based computer, it boots up to MS-DOS. If it's something like Commodore, it boots up to the basic interpreter. And that actually invites the user to program the device. With mobile and with cloud, the user is so far away from the programming experience. Actually, if you read a lot of the early literature that programmer wrote, uh, computer scientists, they actually didn't have that big of a distinction between the user programmer. Sometimes they're hyphenated, user programmer, user dash programmer. Right now, when we say user, we usually mean the end user that doesn't know how to how to program. And so one undeniable thing is that we've got a lot more sophisticated in our software. So I think one thing, you know, one sort of informal rule that I observed about this world is like the more advanced the tools for programming, the worse it is to the beginner experience. So there's an inverse relationship between sophistication of our tools as programmers, end user programming, hobbyist programming, introduction to programming, people trying to get into into software engineering. And you could see that in the, I think more, I think this the biggest example of this has been the JavaScript web development world, right? Where 10 years ago or even more, you open Notepad, you save the file as index.html, you drop in a script there, you open another notepad with a JavaScript, and you start coding JavaScript. Like literally that's all you need. You just click click on the file, it'll open in Netscape or Internet Explorer, and you're you're on your way. You know, compare that with setting up React or Angular or Ember or any of, of that stuff. So, you know, that's something that's frustrated me a lot. And one of the things that I've, I'm really proud of at, at our work at Facebook was I was responsible for the React Native JavaScript development experience, meaning the React Native Packager, the React Native uh, command line experience and all that. And one thing we always kind of thought about is TTH, time till hello world. Like how much time does it take for someone to get a hello world on the, on the screen? And we try to always get it under five minutes. And so do as, as much for the user as possible to get it under five minutes. I remember one of the things that was really cool when we released React Native was that we had this three-line like bash code or shell code that, that could, you co- could copy and it will initiate a new, a new application and open the emulator, the Hello World program. And people tweeted them out. Like they were so sort of enamored by, by how easy it is, you know, versus setting up Xcode or any of these, these sure. big things. So yeah, this is something that I've, thought a lot about. Now, when it comes to the cloud, it's that 
what is the boot to REPL for the cloud, right? What is the, you know, we, in the PC, we had to boot to basic using Commodore or boot to MS-DOS. What is the boot to REPL for the cloud? So I haven't seen any, right? What is, if the cloud, if we're saying the cloud is the next computing paradigm, it's where most of our computing is happening. You know, it's getting cheaper and cheaper. Remote computing is getting better and better with Google Stadia and things like that. Even things that we always thought uh, to be as close to the user as possible, like games, are now going to remote, going to the cloud. And so the cloud is one of those computing paradigm shifts. But you know, how can we get it to be really accessible? Get it to like, okay, I'm on the cloud now. I'm, I'm evaluating code in the cloud. I'm, I'm writing my application really quickly. And so that's one other thing that, that I thought a lot about. And in some ways, Replit and, is that, uh, is boot, boot to REPL in the cloud, right? You, you go to a Python REPL, so open your uh, browser, REPL.it, forward slash L, forward slash Python, right? You get a, you get a Python REPL and you can, you can do hello world in two seconds or you can open, you can start a server. You can start a Flask server and it'll detect that and it'll launch the, the web app for you. And now you're, you're, you just deployed a Flask app, right? And in, in a few seconds. And so that's the kind of the, the philosophy of where we're coming towards this. But if all I'm doing is hello world, why do I need the cloud? I can do hello world on my local machine. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a good question. I don't think that local computing is going to be defunct anytime soon, but the cloud is certainly one of those, you know, we went from mainframes to microcomputers to PCs to mobile devices. And it seems like the cloud is another one of those shifts where a lot of the computing is happening there. And so you need a way for people to start programming the cloud in a very, a very easy way, in the same way that we were able to program micro microcomputers. Looking for a job is painful. And if you are in software and you have the skill set needed to get a job in technology, it can sometimes seem very strange that it takes so long to find a job that's a good fit for you. Vettery is an online hiring marketplace that connects highly qualified workers with top companies. Vettery keeps the quality of workers and companies on the platform high because Vettery vets both workers and companies. Access is exclusive, and you can apply to find a job through Vettery by going to vettery.com slash sedaily. That's V-E-T-T-E-R-Y dot com slash sedaily. Once you're accepted to Vettery, you have access to a modern hiring process. You can set preferences for location, experience level, salary requirements, and other parameters so that you only get job opportunities that appeal to you. No more of those recruiters sending you blind messages that say they are looking for a Java rock star with 35 years of experience who's willing to relocate to Antarctica. We all know that there is a better way to find a job. So check out vettery.com slash sedaily and get a $300 sign-up bonus if you accept a job through Vettery. Vettery is changing the way people get hired and the way that people hire. So check out vettery.com slash sedaily and get a $300 sign-up bonus if you accept a job through Vettery. That's v-e-t-t-e-r-y dot com slash sedaily. Thank you to Vettery for being a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. 
so I definitely agree with that. I guess what I'm taking issue with is whether or not that point needs to occur at Hello World. Like, when I'm in my Hello World phase of programming, to some extent, like, I don't even want to think about servers and, like, remote stuff and, like, HTTP something. Like, I'm just overwhelmed by, like, what's the syntax? Yeah. You're sort of agnostic to that, and especially uh, on Replit, you don't know where you're executing your code. A lot of people think they're doing it locally, and so it doesn't matter. You're right. But one other principle that we have is another thing that we've lost is the incremental approach to learning programming. So it used to be that maybe you've edited your MySpace page, and then you've you know you've opened your HTML editor and created your first website and you sort of accidentally became a programmer. Right now, it's really hard to be accidentally a programmer. You have to go to boot camp or computer science or a university or something like that. But you need that sort of continuum. And so maybe you've written Hello World and then uh, you wrote your first program. But then maybe you, you want to save things to a file, right? And have that file be downloadable or share that with the with with your friends. Maybe you want to start a server. Maybe the first thing that you know after you learn the basic programming, you Google like how to make a website in Python, and then you go to a Stack Overflow link, and in, inside the Stack Overflow link is like a you know piece of code for a simple HTTP server in Python. You copy that. You should be able to paste it on Replit, and it should just work. And so we do we make that work actually. And the way we make that work is that say it imports Flask. We have a package manager we call Universal Package Manager. It's an abstraction on top of all the different package managers for different languages. Uh, one of the, its more interesting features is what we call bare imports. So bare imports basically analyzes your code, looks at wh- what imports you have, and then installs them for you. If you're someone who just getting started with programming and you copied a piece of code from the internet and you want to do a specific thing like start a server or start a website, start developing a website, it should just work, you know? So I do agree with you that you don't have to think about all that stuff. You can delay the complexity as much as possible, and we're totally on board with that. Now, the, the question is, like, why not you know, do it locally, then, then put it on the cloud? I think that incremental approach to learning makes it easy if it's all in one place and you're, like, coding against the same runtime, same environment, and that doesn't change under, under your feet. Yeah, the, f- the friction I agree with you on is the point at which... So, like, if I decide I want to stand up a Python web server, I can go to Stack Overflow and I can learn about how to set up that server remote, server locally. That's never been a, an issue for me in my, my recollection. Where it gets tough is, like, when you want to deploy it. When you actually want to deploy that server and make it accessible to people to go to www.jeffswebsite.com then you have to start looking at, like, what is the hosting thing? Like, well, how do I, is there a firewall rule thing? And there is where I see the idea that you have, if you've actually started in the cloud, then whatever cloud system you're on can support you easily making that an, a universally accessible website rather than a locally accessible website. But I would actually... The first part of what you said here is that it always been easy for you to stand up a local web server. I don't think that's true for everyone, right? So 
uh, think about everything that you need uh, to say do a Flask, which is the most uh, popular Python uh, web framework, a Flask server locally. So maybe you you Google that, maybe you get that that code snippet, but then you need to know how to start a new project, how to create a new directory, CD into that, you know, init the project, and then you need to learn how to use pip. You probably don't have pip installed. Then you need to go figure out how to install pip. And then after you install pip, well, there's some issues there. Maybe you install pip2 instead of pip3, and you're trying to do a Python 3 project versus a Python 2 project. So, you know, there's a lot of issues. And then you get into virtual env, and you're getting into all this complexity. And maybe, maybe we can blame Python for that complexity. But, you know, every language has its complexity. And a lot of people get stuck in that. A lot of people just don't know where to go after that. And in my opinion, for programming to hook people in, they need to have that feeling of programming, what it feels like to be programming. A lot of people think what programming is, is IT, is troubleshooting. It's installing and unstalling things and linking and unlinking things and doing all that stuff. So I think abstracting that away early on in the process is important. Now, the you know usual criticism of this is that, okay, you're being too magical, you're hiding that away, people are not learning properly. Actually, invariably, we see people that start with Replit go locally and know how to set up a development environment and actually learn all this stuff. And so it's not an either-or situation, but I think especially early on, you'd want to get people as fast as possible to see a result. But to your second point about deployment, to see a result and share it with someone, right? I want to be able to share it with a lot of people. Their first user is their grandma or their 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 friends. And so you, you want to just share a website with them and should be able to render. We actually go beyond that on the, on the sharing side. If you've written a command line application, just hello world or what's your name, hello, Jeff, we actually give you a shareable link just for the terminal output. So you can give that to your friend and they can, they can just see that. So another thing that we try to do is like, the first experience of, of getting a user should be really fast. You're nine years old, you're building a small program. You should be able to get your first user to like play with your small, let's say, text story game or something like that. So on the, on the deployment side, we make sharing a lot easier. We make sharing web apps and command line applications a lot easier. Yeah, I mean, I'm with you that everything moves to the cloud for one reason or another. And it actually doesn't even matter what I believe because you just look at what Google's doing with, like they wouldn't be investing so much in Chromebooks if this was not the future. Everything's going to the cloud. It's, you know, dumb client devices for, for the large part, you know, unless you're like a car, right? Then you actually have some like real significant trade-offs to make and decisions to make. And I'm sure this shift, this shift always goes back and forth. But like right now, you know, you look at what the Chromebook is doing. You look at what what's going on with WebAssembly. Clearly, we're pushing a lot of functionality into like it's, you know, you've got a client that's kind of doing a lot of stateless processing and then all of the stateful stuff is happening in the cloud because like why would you want to have you know two phase three phase commit g- involving like your client device in in a way where you might lose it just like push everything to the cloud and so it becomes a question of like i wonder where we're at in the movement towards that complete 
cloud development experience? And specifically, what are the shortcomings or what's the division of labor today between the client device and the cloud? And like, what developments need to occur to to get that closer to the ideal, the, whatever ideal you envision, whatever is the division of labor that you envision? Are we talking about computing in general or development? Computing in general. Yeah. So on the extreme side of the equation, you have Apple and iPhone, and it's very sort of edge-oriented computing. Like it's it's a very client-heavy computing. And then, like I said, Google is on the other side, where it's like very cloud computing. I think a lot more of the world, a lot more of what we're seeing is is going towards cloud. If you think about the next two billion people coming coming online. They're probably going to use cheap computers that will not enable to do them to do all the computing that they want to do locally. But then the question is like, are they actually getting good internet? And then there, there are a few things we can talk about there, like the satellite internet by Amazon or by SpaceX, and that that might happen very soon in the next couple of years. So if if you think about these shifts, like cheap, very cheap uh, mobile devices and and client computing and high speed internet cheap high-speed internet all all over the world and then cheap computing like obviously all the big clouds are just like competing the the computing prices like lower and lower every year and if you take if you look at this three shifts i i'd be betting that like we're gonna see more and more you maybe cloud is, is might not be the best thing here but remote computing right i think there are opportunities where you can see some kind of like mesh networking remote computing thing happen. Like for example, if you have a very powerful desktop at home, maybe you could like plug it into a network and it becomes that, you know, we've heard that story before. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Eventually it'll happen. Yeah. Some involving Ethereum or something. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm not going that way, but, uh, (laughs) but I mean, you know, they, but eventually, no, why not? Why not? Yeah. 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 Why not? And so you just, you could see it trending in that direction, but with regards to development, like what does it take to to bring it uh, online and what are the critiques there? Obviously, like the biggest critique is that people are used to their tools, right? They're used to Emacs, Vim, VS Code. You have like complete control over your, your machine. If you wreck it, it's your problem. You're going to fix it. And, and on the cloud, you're basically renting out a computer from from someone on the it's someone else's computer basically and a lot of times cloud development environments actually don't have as many tools and options it's more narrow but i think a lot of these things are just are just because it's really early in that direction i think a lot of these things could be solved but i'm actually like not against local development as well it's not like something it's not like we at replit are pushing cloud development as the end and be all of of everything you know, who know we who knows we might also you know be releasing like a local editor sometime in the future we don't take like a very strong stance on that the, the strongest stance we take is actually is interactive programming we think that things like i said earlier is that programming is a conversation between the human and and the machine you know seymour papert one of the grandfathers of mit media lab that does all these uh, fantastic uh, computing experiments and now they're on scratch i think the world's most popular like programming environment for kids has millions of kids on it 
he said once that um, computers are math speaking machines and that for kids to learn math, they can just talk to the computer, right? And I, I, I thought this was like a really good metaphor for what programming is. It's sort of like a conversation with this highly logical entity that's kind of executing your commands. But it needs to be a little bit more interactive because we make mistakes, because we don't have fully formed thoughts as, as humans. And so it needs to be this back and forth experience with the, with the machine. And so this is one strong stance we take. Speed as to which people start is another strong stance we take. Incremental or adaptive IDE. IDEs should start out simple, start out very easy, and then expand and show their power and allow you to do more interesting things as you get advanced in your career. That's another strong stance that we take. But as far as the cloud, I, that's where my thinking is right now but i'm you know i'm i'm open to the idea that things might change or that future might not come to fruition uh, etc at the beginning of 2019 we had problems with software daily which is our custom built website and mobile app set the website was not engineered properly, and our iOS app was buggy. Everything needed a redesign. To help us refactor our cross-platform application, we brought in Altology. Altology is a full-stack software engineering firm that helps innovators build worthwhile products. Altology will help you get your project or your company to where you want them to be. They can rescue your project, they can augment your team, they can help you get a new version of your product out the door. And if you're building a brand new product from scratch, Altology can also design and develop web and mobile products that are brand new. The Altology team is entrepreneurial, they're design focused, and they're able to work across the stack. To get help with your engineering projects, check out Altology today by going to altology.com. That's altology.com. Thank you to the Altology team for helping us get Software Daily to where it is today and for being continued friends of the show. And if you need help with your application, check out altology.com. Let's get into the engineering behind Replit. So for people who don't know, it's a system where you can just open up Replit and it's like you have a terminal in the cloud. There have been a number of efforts at this kind of thing over the years. Is there some specific engineering breakthrough that happened more recently that has made it easier to build Replit? Or did you do anything markedly different? Tell me about the the engineering behind it and and kind of the why why now question because this this thing has been tried right you've got you've got uh, cloud not cl what is it cloud nine and you know a bunch of these other things that have been tried over the years w why has it gotten better today there are a number of things that that made it better today Wait, let, let me answer this question so actually the technology behind replit the original idea has been around for a really long time so 2009 2010 I was going to university back back in Jordan, where I'm from, and one of my frustration has been every time I go to a computer science class, 
someone with with no laptop i couldn't afford afford one and so i would go to class and every time before we start coding we have to set up the development environment uh, for the different languages we're using and that's very frustrating because you're in the computer lab you might not have the necessarily software or it might have the software but it's configured differently or the versions are wrong so you can see the professor or the assistant kind of like going around and trying to fix all the development environments and so all this frustration led me to like kind of dream about the world where i can like you know control t and open new tab and start coding so that was the original idea behind it and i started working on it at the time 2009 chrome had just come out like a year or two earlier v8 had just come out javascript was getting faster it was obvious to me that the browser is going to become the primary you know application development or application distribution runtime environment so it was like okay you know now we have docs and like you know the whole google suite uh, online probably we're going to a lot of the things that we do locally will probably move to the browser as well that uh, programming should be one of them i looked around and there wasn't a lot out there i'm not sure if i'm mixing my timeline but i think the only thing that i saw the only experiment that i saw was mozilla bespin it was called which became later on ace which was the editor that was powering cloud nine but there wasn't really a lot of people there was a few javascript repls where you can execute javascript like jsbin style things like that there wasn't uh, like a repl that could run any language there wasn't a repl that that you can both like edit and like do interactive programming in and so i wanted to do that my friends and i were studying sickbee a structure and interpretation of computer programs which is a classic MIT introduction to programming course that was originally the language for it was scheme uh, right now i think they switched to python but it was scheme as the introduction and there's a lovely youtube series on it where the original authors just give the lectures and it's it's one of the best computer science courses out there it's elementary but they do it in such a elegant way And so when my friends and I were setting it outside of school it wasn't a school program or anything like that we just decided to do it because we loved it and so we so I I put up a scheme repl for my friends so I wrote a scheme interpreter and, and put it up and we started using it my friends and I and we're like okay this is this is really cool like we really loved this experience and so okay maybe maybe this idea has legs okay let's do python afterwards And so we started writing a Python interpreter in JavaScript because naturally that's how how you want to do it. Two or three months in, and it's like, okay, this is going to take ten years. This project just to like get all the languages in. And at the time, Mozilla had mscripten that they were working on. A researcher was working on it, and then I think they had like a rudimentary version of Python compiled to JavaScript. And so we thought, okay, this is interesting. Let's let's try this out. We tried it out. It evaluated basic Python. but then there was a lot of things missing for it so we started contributing to the project i think we implemented the original kind of posix uh, emulation layer like the file system and things like that for mscripten and then we got we got ruby we got python we got lua we got a few other languages in and so we we released the first basically production ready mscripten app like the first production mscripten app was 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 replit and could you say and by the way this was like long before you were even at facebook right so you've been thinking about this for a long time no, yeah this was uh, like literally 10 years ago <laughs> and so we released js repl was the thing that that released the open source the open source environment for building javascript repls for any language 
And then Replit was the basically the demo application on top of that. 2011, we had the same domain name and we put up the application. It was basically a list of languages. You select one language and you can just like, there's an editor, there's a console, that's it. And there's a big play button and you could, you could run that thing and release it. And it was number one Hacker News for a few days. And then later on, it was, was really surreal what happened. We, Wait, that was 2011? That was 2011. What years were you at Facebook again? 2013 to 2016. Oh my God, okay. Yeah. So 2011, released this top of Hacker News. And we started getting all these companies interested in what we're doing. We're like, you know, two or three kids from, from Jordan. I recruited some of my friends. My now wife did the logo design for us. And Udacity started using it. We got an email from Peter Norvig uh, <laughs> saying like, hey, we're really interested in what you're doing. Like, can we use it uh, for Udacity? A bunch of other companies started using it. A lot of online coding schools. Some, some are still alive. Some, some are dead. And then Codecademy started using it. Codecademy had launched in 2011 and they used a lot of the infrastructure that we built to build their website. Oh my God. So that's how you wound up at Codecademy. Yep. Oh my God. So the founder CEO, Zach Sims, wanted to hire me and I'm like, no, no, I want to make this a startup. I want to build this. And I resisted for a while and and uh, I tried to raise money on Jordan, but you know, there was like a handful of VCs and, and they're like, Look, son, we we only fund copies of American companies. Like, oh, we let globalism do our work. Like, why would we innovate? <laughs> Which is, you know, a rational thing to do. I, I think it's gotten a lot better now. But so I reluctantly kind of agreed to start talking to the Code Academy folks and did some like consulting for them and 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 worked on more languages for Code Academy. And then founder CEO came to Jordan, flew to Jordan to recruit me. And we had, um, we went to Dead Sea and we hung out for a while. And, and afterwards, uh, I kept saying no, and he kept giving me a bigger offer. <laughs> uh, and then I was, you know, taking him back to the airport because I, I just said no. And then he, he gave me a bigger airport, uh, offer at the airport. And we literally, in the car, signed the offer. Do you think if you would have just done Replit back then, it would have worked? Yeah. So that is hilarious. Yeah. I think I should have just like, so I was working, Yahoo had acquired a Jordanian company, the first email Arabic, Arabic email company called Maktoub. And so I was working at Yahoo. That was my day job after graduating and hated it. Yahoo was like the beginning of the decline 2011. And it was just awful. They treated engineers really badly because they, they were thinking, oh, we're a media company. Engineering is a cost that we shouldn't have. And so, and so I really hated my job and I would go home and like, you know, work on this at night and weekends and things like that. But, you know, that's the sort of the path in life where like you, you just go zigzag and, and, you know, go back to the original idea. I mean, it t- took me basically from launch to starting the company five years and be- had, aban- had abandoned the project. Like after I worked at Code Academy and then Facebook, I abandoned the project for five years. And then the person who took the initiative to revive the project was actually my wife, Haya, which my co-founder now, designer, Replis designer. She was like, work on side projects all the time. And she was struggling to find a job in design at the time, I think New York, we were in New York and she wanted like more things for her portfolio. And we thought it'd be fun to work on a project. She was like, oh, whatever happened to that like Replit project that we worked on? <laughs> so I opened up Google Analytics and sure enough, there was like five, 6,000 monthly active users. Uh, and I'm like, okay, you know, 
it's really buggy and like we haven't updated in a really long time. Let's see what happens. So I write a, what became our infrastructure we call uh, GoVal now. It's written in Go. It's an evaluation service like GoVal. So we, I, I built this uh, Docker based, you know, container orchestration and evaluation system sort of pre Kubernetes. I, I probably would have used Kubernetes then, but, and released it and we saw we added more languages and we saw user users grow. Then we added user accounts and saving your projects because that, that didn't exist. And we saw more users. And so by the time my role at Facebook was kind of naturally coming to an end, I had started the JavaScript infrastructure team, which, which maintained Babel and Jest and a lot of these tools. They, they wanted to just wind down the team. And, and I thought, okay, maybe we could, we, could make, we could finally make this thing a company. It was really growing to the point that it was like costing me a big chunk of my salary just to keep it up. So I quit my job in April 2016 and went full-time on this. We were able to raise a round of funding around the same time, not, not long afterwards from Bloomberg Beta. I just want to pause there and say, I don't think it's that, it's, not, it's neither common nor uncommon for people to have these projects that they tinker with for like a decade and like think about for a decade until they kind of, it's like some combination of the project reaching maturity and just like looking around in the market and saying to yourself enough times, like, why isn't anybody doing this? Not to insert personal uh, anecdote, but like before I started this podcast, I was so sure somebody else would do it. I was like, why even try? Somebody else is just going to do it. Like, which is, it's so, it's such a weird internal, I don't know if you were playing those internal psychological games, but you sort of just like assume you're going to get scooped. Or you assume there's some reason not to do it. You assume like the efficient market is going to take care of it or it should have already taken care of it by now. Therefore, it means that it doesn't work, right? It's just weird how the psychology, you know, sometimes keeps you from doing what you should have done until 10 years later, you finally have the whatever self-motivation or, or self determination, confidence, whatever you want to call it to actually also go money, you know, <laughs> that's the other thing. Okay. You're so right. like, yeah, money. Yeah. So like I, you know, for you know, most of my life, I didn't have much money. And so in 2016, I had like some Facebook stocks that vested at some savings to stand up on my feed and, you know, put in like 20, 30 K in the company before we raised, raised money. I wouldn't been able to do that, you know, to take that risk without without some kind of even le- leaving Code Academy. I was broke, you know. I had a s- a startup stocks, but actually exercising those and paying the taxes on them was a huge burden. And you know, when we were doing the Facebook onboarding, I had to fly from New York to to California. I didn't have money to pay for the ticket. They reimbursed you afterwards, but I didn't have money to pay for the ticket. What I did was. I put out the our home in New York, our apartment for up on Airbnb and got the money for Airbnb to to fly over to to California and so money was a big aspect in that, but I do agree that also uh self doubt and the idea that there's so many people in the world, seven billion people on the internet there's like two or three billion people, but like how come no one is is making 
you know, software engineering, really in-depth software engineering podcasts, right? It's like the first time I met you, I, I think I said that I, I love this podcast and listen to it. But when I was looking for one, there wasn't much like you kind of like go around different podcasts and you, nothing is really interesting, but this one was, was really interesting. And I still think there should be more. <laughs> I totally agree. <laughs> yeah. Totally agree. Yeah. And so it's weird how that works. I don't know. The market is, is really efficient actually, but yeah, I mean, it took a long time. I wish there were, um, you know, more venture in Jordan. I wish there were more VCs, you know, taking chances on people in different parts of the world. I think that pioneer thing is pretty cool. Yeah, pioneer is really cool. There's like a lot more work now. YC is going global, so that's that's really cool. So you know, a lot, a lot of people are comfortable funding people online and without meeting them in person. So that's uh, that's getting better. So I'm really excited about that future. I suppose this is like pretty much proof that the efficient market hypothesis doesn't work. Like we don't like have the money going to the entrepreneurial people. Man, we've really run up a, a lot of time here, like talking about random stuff. I guess we should talk some about a little bit more about engineering. Yeah. So now that you've been, I guess you know one thing I wanted to ask is like of all these languages for building a web IDE, is there was is there one that was like particularly hard, like I don't know Java or something to actually virtualize in the cloud, or are they all? And actually, no. Here's a better question. This is a more succinct question. When I spin up a REPL, when I go to REPL, what is happening on the back end? Yep, that's a great question. So the first thing that we do is we, you know, the web server serves you the, the JavaScript and the application, the editor, everything, and, and then gives you a token, and then you connect to an external server, which is eval.replit. And that server is where the magic happens, basically. So the first thing you connect to is a service that we call Conman, Container Manager. Uh, this is kind of like you know what it says. It'll check if the project has an existing container. If it has an existing container, it routes you to that container. If you're connecting to a multiplayer session, our version of collaboration, it connects you. It also finds that that container in our somewhere in our cluster connects you to that to that container. But if it's a new project, we will spin up a new container for you. And inside that container, we uh, we put in a, a program called PID One which is you know, our version of the init process. So that sort of uh, Zudu init process, then basically your browser is talking, di- is talking directly to that, to that server. And then we have a protocol that resembles SSH. So you open channels and, and you have, um, uh, for every service that, that you want to sort of do some kind of handshake and open a, open a like, bi-directional channel. So in Replit, we have like different services. So the basic service is evaluating code. And so that's one channel. When that channel starts, what we do is we open a process for the REPL. So for interactive languages, we actually spin up the actual REPL, like for Python, Node, whatever. We have actually an open source project called PryBar. We call it universal REPL interface. So it basically creates the same interface for all the languages that have, that have interactive programming environment. So Ruby, Python, JavaScript, they all behave the same way. And so there's just papers over that complexity. And this is a recurring pattern that you'll see in our infrastructure is like, it's all about papering over language complexities. So it starts that pry bar, attaches a PTY, and then you know streams it back to the, you know we use Xterm.js. So now you're actually in the REPL and the actual REPL in the code. Another service is files. So when you're typing, you're actually writing to the file. So we open the file protocol 
and we're sending operational transform events. Because Replit is going to a direction where it's collaborative at heart. So operational transform is the protocol that was invented by Google when they were doing Google Wave to do collaboration. And that's the standard for for you know text collaboration. And so we use that as the primitive for writing files, actually. We, we just send OT, OT commands back and forth. Say you want to do a package installation, whether that magical bare imports package installation, or we have on the sidebar the packager where you can search for packages and install packages. That's another service that we start. And that service, actually, we're about to open source. Maybe by the time this episode is out, we will have it open. A new project called UPM, Universal Package Manager. So the Universal Package Manager, same as Prybar, wants to paper over the different complexities and workflows of different languages on how to do package management. So there are slight differences between NPM and Bundler. There are slight differences between PIP and NPM. And so we want to make it so that you're using the same command line interface and can install packages in any language you'd like. And has that feature of guessing what kind of imports you're, you're trying to import. And so that's that's another service that, that we start. And so you could see this, all these services that could start. Another one is language server protocol. So when you're, when you're in Python, Node, or whatever, we actually have really good autocomplete. And that's because we start an LSP server, and that goes through the, the same protocol. LSP is the language server protocol, the thing that Microsoft invented to make it easy for IDEs to get really good uh, IntelliSense. So VS Code, I think, was the first to, to implement that. But you can see LSP now is used in every editor, basically, is implementing LSP. Every language is implementing LSP. So that's a universal protocol that we didn't invent, and we're glad that Microsoft did. So, so that's another piece of technology that we really care about is just like universal protocols, universal sort of interfaces and things like that. And so now you're talking from your REPL IDE, you're talking to, to PID1 back and forth, you're installing packages, whatever. If you start a multiplayer session and start coding with someone else, they connect to your container and you're both in the same container using the same services and everything that's happening is centralized inside that container. And we think the technology that we built for that is, is really interesting. It's an entire development suite that fits inside a single container with all the, its different services. And we started thinking, you know, earlier I said we might go local in the future. That thing allows us to go local because it's sort of agnostic as to where it's running. But you drop it anywhere, it creates this development experience. So, I mean, you, I can imagine a lot of interesting shared state applications potentially being built on that kind of thing. Okay, well, there's a ton of engineering depth we could go into there, but we obviously are up against time. So I'm, I'm just going to ask a, f- a few more like uh, high-level questions. I'm sure we can, do, we can, I'm definitely down to do another show at some point, but um, I want to hear about your container orchestration woes. Has that, uh, the experience of growing up kind of capital constrained, has that affected how you, the like approaches you take to the company, company building? Yeah, I would say so. I, I We have a really long horizon. We didn't get a chance to talk about this, but a big part of our... We have a very diverse user base in all different axes. It's, it's diverse, actually. But one interesting part about it is the most enthusiastic users that we have are actually teenagers and young people, college students. And what we've seen is that the people that are learning programming at Replit actually become lifetime users. 
and they use it to build projects. They use it to collaborate. They meet friends there, and and so we think we're really building we're building the the programming service that people are growing up with, and so we're building a lot of equity that that you know in the future will will materialize. And so we try to take a lean approach to to building the company. For a long time, we were just uh, 2016, 2017, we were just three people, mostly family, basically, and paying, paying ourselves very little, working outside of, out of home. We raised the round from... Uh, you know, uh, from Andreessen Horowitz last year, and most people would have like blown up the company afterwards and 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 done all that, but we didn't. We really we continued to stay lean. We're we're hiring, and anyone who's interested, we have a really interesting jobs page that you should look at. Replit forward slash jobs. I'll, I'll leave it to the audience to to see it. But we've been fair, very careful in growing the team, and we're trying we're trying to build the company more sustainably. We're we're not trying to you know. You know, get on the sort of VC hamster wheel. So I, th- I think maybe that that's been influenced by the kind of growing up capital constraint, like you said. But I just think that it's it's the rational thing to do. Well, also, no why rush it? I mean, you and you've been working on it for ten, whatever, ten, eleven years already. You kind of like have a moat already to some extent. You've been thinking about it for so long. Why give away, you know, a bunch of the company before, you know a lot of that vision is fulfilled. You know, you've, you've got a lot of white space to fill in. And if you know how to do it with, you know, giving, giving away only a minimal amount of capital, then that's, that's awesome. Last question. What's the overlap between musicians and programmers? I think the, the one thing that's, uh, that's really interesting is goes back to, to what I said about the conversational aspect of programming. And maybe that's not every musician, but especially improvisation. And as you're programming, especially in a REPL interactive environment, there's a lot of improvisation. When I'm starting an app, a new program, a new application, I actually don't know really where I'm headed. I'm actually, a lot of time, I, I know what the end state maybe should be, but that also changes along the, t- along the way. So that's why I really like interactive programming because, you know, people uh, compare programming to different creative aspects. And it's all true. Like, you know, programs, hackers and painters, and there are people that, you know, compare to being a chef or whatever. And so I think it's the same with, with musicians, the way they compose new music, the way they do these like jam sessions. And I, I think it's the same with, with, with programmers that a lot of creativity just comes out of the improvisation. It comes out of the circumstance of it. Okay. I'm John. Thanks for coming on the show. It's been really great talking. My pleasure. Software Engineering Daily reaches 30,000 engineers every weekday and 250,000 engineers every month. If you'd like to sponsor Software Engineering Daily, send us an email, sponsor at softwareengineeringdaily.com. Reaching developers and technical audiences is not easy, and we've spent the last four years developing a trusted relationship with our audience We don't accept every advertiser because we work closely with our advertisers and we make sure that the product is something that can be useful to our listeners. Developers are always looking to save time and money, and developers are happy to purchase products that fulfill this goal. You can send us an email at sponsor at softwareengineeringdaily.com. Even if you're just curious about sponsorships, you can feel free to send us an email. We have a variety of sponsorship packages and options. Thanks for listening. 